This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 251st episode, we have some dinosaur news, including how Deinonychus may have used its claws and 3D printing some Triceratops bones. We also have an interview with Ari Rudenko, who we first interviewed years ago about his stage performance Ghosts of Hell Creek, which is all about dinosaurs and dancing like a dinosaur. And we have a dinosaur of the day, Huayangasaurus, and of course, a fun fact, which is about velociraptors and other raptors. It's a fun with raptors episode. It is. <laughs> but before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for supporting us. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery. Crispy, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, and Albertosaurus. Yes, thank you so much for all your support. It got us to 250 episodes, which we aired last week on The Bone Wars, and and of course this episode, and we're going to keep going because of amazing dinosaur enthusiasts like you. And if you want to join this growing community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, as promised, we have an update on how raptors like Deinonychus use their claws. And this is according to an article by Peter Bishop published in Pure J. So if you think about what raptors might have used their claws for, and of course when I'm talking about their claws I'm really referring to their second ungual as it's technically referred to, but really we think of it as that curved hook claw that raptors are famous for. And there have been lots of proposed uses for this claw. So most famously probably is slashing, which is what they talk about in Jurassic Park. They talk about how maybe they were smart enough to potentially target a critical area. Like in the movie, they talk about disemboweling a small boy. Mm. <laughs> or it could be, you know, cutting the throat of another dinosaur or maybe going for a large artery, something to that effect, because it looks like the way they're holding it off the ground, maybe they're saving it up and trying to keep it sharp to use it in a very specific way. And since it's right on its foot there, it's kind of like using a finger, you can be pretty precise about where you poke. <laughs> so that's one potential option. Another potential option is for gripping. 
If we think about things like Allosaurus, they have a good grasping hand, and modern raptor birds use their feet in a similar way. They can grab onto prey and, you know, they fly away with fish and all sorts of different things. So maybe Deinonychus was using that extra long sickle claw to hold down prey. They could have also potentially used it for climbing. So they could have used it as is often depicted for climbing animals, say a Tenontosaurus or a Hadrosaur or a sauropod. They show it almost like using it like a crampon. I think <laughs> yes. one article described it like, you know, sort of climbing up the slippery side of an animal by sticking in the claw, then using the other foot to stick in, Ooh. and then proceeding up. That's got to be painful for that other animal. It would be if it happened. We're not really sure if they did it because we don't have any evidence of that specific behavior. Another thing you could climb to, though, is trees. So a lot of animals have claws specifically for climbing trees, which isn't unreasonable. We know that a lot of dromaeosaurs had wings or at least wing-like things, and therefore Maybe you want to climb a tree to get to a nest or to chase down prey or to glide off of the tree to get somewhere else. Lots of reasons you might want to climb a tree. Another potential option is for defense. This is one I hadn't thought about before reading this paper. So they talk specifically about how modern birds kind of kick at each other when they're defending themselves against other birds of the same species. So they kind of flap their wings and then stick their feet out in front of them and kick at the other bird to try to keep them away. <laughs> and a lot of times this might be between males, rival males or something like that. You may have also seen modern birds that grab onto each other's feet and kind of play a game of chicken, like diving towards the ground. <laughs> yeah. Do chickens do that? No. Do chickens play in chicken? They do not. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> chickens don't really fly much. <laughs> but... Yeah, the feet could be used for defense or some sort of intraspecific combat, either among themselves or maybe against another animal, I suppose. If some smaller animal is coming at you, maybe you could just kind of kick at it and scare it away. And then finally, they propose that maybe they could have used them for digging. It's kind of obvious a lot of dinosaurs use their feet for digging or their hands for digging. There's lots of good stuff underground, lots of mammals, <laughs> especially during the Cretaceous that you could dig out and maybe have a snack on. Although this claw specifically, given its shape, doesn't look like it would have been a great option for digging. Still technically possible or maybe just an alternative usage, maybe not the main usage, but a side usage. So to test some of these, Bishop created a musculoskeletal model to try out some different options. Specifically, they just modeled one leg and foot of Deinonychus. So it's not all raptors, it's just Deinonychus. It's usually a good choice when you're looking at raptors because we have a good number of Deinonychus specimens to look at. You wouldn't use something like Dakota raptor that we just have the one <laughs> of. <laughs> and with their model of the Deinonychus leg and foot, each of these activities, whether it's kicking out in front of it, trying to climb something, digging, what have you, it's going to require a different force and a different angle of a claw. So if you imagine you're digging, you're kind of rotating the claw across, whereas if you're climbing something, you probably have the claw at a little bit more of a fixed position, and you're kind of just using the leg behind it to do the climbing. So it depends on which activity you're using, and maybe by looking at the muscle attachment points on the bones and what we know about modern birds and similar animals, we can figure out how they might have been able to bend their claws and which of these behaviors it would have best aligned with. So the models rely on accurately guessing the tendons and muscles of a Deinonychus which is a pretty tough ask because none of that has ever fossilized. 
So what they do is they make a bunch of assumptions based on what we can see in Deinonychus's bones and what we can infer from modern animals. First of all, they assume that there's a separate muscle running to that special sickle claw than there are running to the other claws. And the reason that they assume that is because we know that when it's walking with its feet on the ground, you don't see that digit on the ground. And in order to keep it retracted, the most reasonable way to keep it up while the other toes are down is to have a separate muscle there. So if you try to do it with your own hand, I was just doing this the whole time I'm reading the paper too, because <laughs> if you imagine just like holding one finger up for a really long period of time, it's really difficult and strenuous on your hand. And that's because all of our ligaments are pretty closely tied together. You know, when you bend one finger, the others tend to bend with it. But since Deinonychus, we know, tended to hold its sickle claw off the ground, it's most likely that it just had a separate tendon for that toe, so it didn't have this problem. The other big assumption that they made was that it used a single flexor and extensor muscle. So basically, it had one muscle to bend the claw down, and it had a different muscle to bend the claw up. Along with this, they opted for a model where the claw is passively raised, meaning that when it's in that upward position while it's walking around and it's not touching the ground, that's the neutral position. And then when it wanted to bend the claw downward, that required flexing. Mm. So it's a lot like our hand in that way too. If our, if our fingers were pointed slightly higher up, when you grip something, that's when you use your muscles. Whereas when you're not gripping, they're neutral and just kind of extended. Right. That keeps the claw sharp, right? Yeah, by keeping it off the ground. And it also uses the least amount of energy, which is why they picked it. Because they figure most of the time it's just walking around. It's not stabbing stuff or <laughs> digging or fighting or whatever it did with its claws. So it would want that to be the neutral position, just up. But that means that the important muscle to look at is the one that flexes it downward. And that muscle they kind of used in a similar way to our arm. So they modeled it as attaching to that large bump on the claw bone. You know, there's on the inside radius of the claw, the curved inward part, there's a big bump on the bottom of it. So that's a big muscle attachment point for bending that claw down. And then if you imagine it's on your finger and then it goes down your hand, through your wrist, and then attaches at your elbow, that's basically how they had their tendon. And that's how our tendons are too because so many land animals have all these like really specific things in common, even across hundreds of billions of years. So it seems like that's the most likely scenario. And then they just use the one muscle and there's their biomechanical model. So after making these assumptions and then trying lots of different positions of the claw and different tension on the tendons and muscle strengths and all that kind of stuff, they came up with a maximum force of the claw that was just under 20 newtons or four and a half pounds of force, which if you think about it, four and a half pounds of force really doesn't sound like all that much, especially for an animal that weighed 490 newtons or 110 pounds. So it's a little bit weaker than it's shown in a lot of places. But interestingly, what they found was that the highest force was possible while it was crouching. Hmm. <laughs> so that's because the flex joints in that wrist and in the elbow increased the tension on that tendon and then that just increased the force available on the claw a little bit. And that led the author to assume that crouching is the preferred posture while using the claw because if it had the most force available while it's crouching, maybe that means that it was crouching 
while I was using the claw. <laughs> it's really as simple as that. There isn't any proof to it. It's just kind of sort of like how you assume that it's going to not need energy to hold the claw up because it's doing that most of the time. You might assume that it would get its peak power from the position in which the peak power was available. Among all the options of different ways that it could use its claw, the one that they pointed out as being the most consistent with crouching is the grasping prey, specifically small prey. The one that's the least consistent is probably something like slashing at large prey with legs extended. So that's more of the Jurassic Park kind of idea of it reaching out and slashing at you. It doesn't seem like that would give it the most available force. And then the amount of force available on that claw being just four pounds of force wouldn't be a great slashing weapon. So it was more of a pounce on something and kill it there sort of attack style than a run up next to something and slash at it from the side, hmm. potentially. Pouncing raptors. Yeah, which they do show that kind of thing a lot in Jurassic Park as well, especially in the later movies. Mm -hmm. Especially for the larger animals they're fighting. Yeah, or they pounce on people a few times. Oh, true. It's also consistent, they point out, with the quote-unquote fighting dinosaurs that Protoceratops and Velociraptor, which were found buried together, presumably in some sort of conflict or fight to the death. <laughs> and they were pretty close together. So it looks like this might have been consistent, even though it's not crouching on top of it necessarily. It did have its leg in that flexed position that might have increased the force that it could have pushed with its claw. So like I said, Deinonychus weighed about 110 pounds. And if it could only do about four and a half pounds of force with the claw, climbing with the claw does seem a little bit unlikely. I guess the analogy would be like us climbing with a single finger on each hand, Ooh. which might be technically possible. I mean, it might have been technically possible for Deinonychus too, because if you hook in, you don't necessarily need all of that force available for moving the claw mm -hmm. as long as the joint can just support the weight. But it's just, there seem to be better options available <laughs> for getting on top of something than trying to climb like that. It just doesn't seem like the best and most likely possible option. Another thing I should point out is that although the force of just four and a half pounds is pretty low, there's a lot of leverage on that claw, especially when you include the extra claw sheath, which would have been covering it while it was alive. So sort of like having the fingernail sticking out from the end of it. And that would have also made it incredibly sharp. So the pressure that this thing is capable of would have been, you know, thousands of PSI. So it would have been plenty to puncture just about anything that it would have encountered. So it's not an issue of, oh, these claws are really weak and they couldn't do anything with them. It's more that, well, they might not have climbed with them and they probably wouldn't have fought with their legs sticking out in front of them. Although I do wonder with the self-defense against other animals, mm -hmm. you don't need that much force behind such a sharp blade to maybe deter something from attacking you. Right. So it might be a reasonable secondary use. When in a pinch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the biggest caveat of the paper is that they didn't include other muscles in the animal's limb. So specifically, back to the analogy of our hands, our grip is affected quite a bit by other arm muscles than just the tendons in our fingers. So if you think about when you're gripping something, the position of your arm makes a big difference. If you have your arm down at your side or above your head, it's harder to grip something than if you kind of hold it in front of your chest. And that's because the other muscles in your arm are helping you to get that grip strength when it's in the right position. But we don't know what those muscles might have been in Deinonychus. 
So maybe there's something in there that would have helped it when its arm is outstretched or when it's crouching that would have helped us to figure this out a little bit better. Also, the study only looked at Deinonychus, obviously. So even though you might broadly say raptors did XYZ, this is just Deinonychus. <laughs> this is a velociraptor, even though I talked about the fighting dinosaurs, which is much smaller. It's also not Utah raptor, which was like 10 times as big. So there might have been different behavior going on with these other dinosaurs. I was also really surprised that the paper didn't mention Tenontosaurus anywhere in it because Deinonychus is very frequently found with that hadrosaur. And Deinonychus is often depicted in paleoart, taking down Tenontosaurus, often in a group. It's for another study. Crouching Deinonychus, hidden Tenontosaurus. <laughs> You're all full of one-liners. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and actually, now that you mentioned crouching Deinonychus, hidden Tenontosaurus, maybe Deinonychus could have just crouched on the back of Tenontosaurus and gotten that extra force that it needed because there are other ways to crouch than crouching on an animal while it's on the ground. You can crouch on the back of an animal too. And if you know, you're on its head or its neck or something, I'm sure you could do plenty of damage. Although maybe the more likely scenario is that they just went after juveniles solo. And then it didn't really matter whether or not they could climb an adult because they were only going after juveniles in the first place. I think after saying need more fossils, the next thing you could say about a lot of dinosaurs is that it's really tough to be a juvenile. Yes, especially an herbivore mm -hmm. because the parents tend to just bail on you. <laughs> they got to survive too. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Speaking of herbivores, sort of related... A man, uh, Bob Sambathy, and his son went on a dinosaur dig that was led by Tate Geological Museum's collection specialist, J.P. Cavagelli, and they found a Triceratops tooth. And the Tate Museum has about five digs each summer. It's open to the public, so you can pay to dig for five days in Cretaceous or Jurassic dinosaur beds. And the Triceratops tooth that they found is fully rooted. And if you want to see it, it's now on display at the Tate Museum at Casper College in Wyoming. In another Triceratops news... The Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands has replaced some of the missing bones of their new Triceratops, nicknamed Dirk, by 3D printing them. So Dirk's part of the new museum in Leiden, and that's taken two years to build. We've also talked about Trix the T-Rex, who's at that museum. Dirk was found in Wyoming and is about 67 million years old. Dirk the Triceratops was missing some ribs, a horn, and part of the skull, so the replacement bones... They 3D printed them, and they're between 50 to 130 centimeters long. Some of these reconstructed bones were based on scans of a triceratops at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis because they found that they were pretty comparable. And it took about two months of continuous printing to print 100 different parts, but it, luckily it was all done in time for the museum opening last month. Nice. Yeah, 3D printing is amazing, but very time-consuming. Yes. <laughs> And then sometimes it fails to print right at the end and you got to start all over again. <laughs> Sounds like you've done this before, Garrett. Yes. <laughs> I think everyone who 3D prints has. Everyone gets nervous when a print starts to last more than a few hours because you imagine it might all be wasted. Right. Especially if it's a, something big. Yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Ari. We're chatting today with Ari Rudenko, who's the founder and artistic director of Prehistoric Body Theater, which is a performance company that uses dance to teach about paleontology and evolution. And if you recognize Ari's name, it's because we interviewed him back in episode 104, Archaeopteryx, where he talked about his first show, Ghosts of Hell Creek. So welcome back. Hi, yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, so we've talked about it before, but it's really interesting. So I think it's worth talking about again you created this dance performance style by translating raptor movements and behavior to the human body. Can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. how you developed that? Uh, yeah. So my background is more in interdisciplinary art and dance. Uh, I was a uh, kind of typical paleontology obsessed kid since I was young, but uh, never quite made it into the field. But the interest really stuck with me. And uh, I actually did my master's and uh, postgraduate program in Indonesia in dance, uh, mostly in Bali, but also elsewhere. And so it was when I was in Indonesia, actually, I was learning and also studying all these uh, elegant, beautiful dances, traditional dances there that are representing animal characters. There's bird of paradise dances, there's hornbill dances, there's also Garuda dances, and the Garuda is a uh, a myth mythical bird with teeth and it has, mm -hmm. you know, its own kind of fearsome character and some really beautiful dances associated with it. And at the same time, I was seeing, you know, these beautiful fossils, especially coming out of China, the Microraptor, and of course, all our other Dromaeosaurid uh, dinosaurs with these beautiful wings, but also fossilized in these death poses, which were to me, reminiscent of the silhouettes of some of these dances that I was learning. So just kind of, you know, through that creative process, putting two and two together and started 
thinking up some ideas of what a uh, dromaeosaurid dinosaur dance might look like <laughs> and how fun that would be to put on stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but then I, I went through, that was kind of the initial creative spark. And it was especially Neil Shubin's book, Your Inner Fish, the 3.5 billion year history of the human body. That book was so influential to me in uh, placing myself in this deep time evolutionary story, placing humanity in this deep time evolutionary story, and also tracing these connections between our bodies and all these other vertebrates. And yeah, thinking like a raptor's body, it's it's a vertebrate. It's also, it's got two arms, two legs, a head, two eyes, a mouth. You know, we can basically map piece for piece the raptor's body onto the human body. It's not going to be a perfect correlation, but on the other hand, there's really a system that can be developed there. And so that was a question that I could first bring to paleontologists. Hey, I have this idea. How would you like to help me try to build this system as methodically as possible. So mm -hmm. what was their response? Well, I, I contacted a number of paleontologists in that early part of the project. Uh, this is going back to you know, 20, late 2015, 2016. So this is a while ago now. And um, Greg Wilson, Dr. Greg Wilson from uh, University of Washington, Burke Museum, and he's also the Hell Creek project director. Um, he, he's been my main mentor since I got into conversation with him, actually not about a dinosaur in this case, but um, looking at Purgatorius, at the earliest Plesiodapiform um, ancestral primates that are found in the Hell Creek area. Oh, cool. So I, I was bringing all these questions, the same questions uh, about how can we build a, a Purgatorius dance by mapping everything we know about this animal to the body. And he always says he thought it was just this absurd joke um, <laughs> at first and uh, had a hard time taking the idea seriously until he saw some of my preliminary explorations and the way that I was working and was quite intrigued, but maybe had a little bit more to do with the specific questions I was asking really about you know, what angle do we hold our wrist at? Exactly how horizontal is the back? You know, when we're walking, what exactly is our gait? Is it bilateral? Is it symmetrical? You know, we have all these questions about how it moves. And from all those questions, those are, you know, questions that he could really dig into answering and were intriguing to him. So mm -hmm. I think with most paleontologists, that's been the initial hook is just this, this puzzle of, yeah, okay, how do you translate this motion? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's really great, too, because you do see a lot of these newer, like, sort of walking with dinosaur style puppets and things. So there's yeah. there's already a little bit of a world of people trying to mimic animal motion, or at least dinosaur motion in that way. But with the way that you're doing it, it's a lot more, I don't know, it uses more of your own body. It's not like you're putting a body suit over your own body, it's you're representing everything as if you are the dinosaur itself, not like wearing a dinosaur, which is fascinating. Yeah. We've got nothing to hide behind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. I remember last time we talked, you had mentioned potentially adding some sort of tail mechanism because that's mm. kind of the one thing that we're missing that dinosaurs have is the tail. Are you still considering doing that? I have a, a friend, Helitz Bora Chase. She's a current PhD student uh, working on dromaeosaurid biomechanics um, at University of Montana. She's, she's also a costume designer, and we've built some prototype models. And we got a nice uh, Acaraptor 
3D printed skull that we can hold in front of the face. And then we did build a prototype tail. It's still challenging. It's not behaving quite the way that we want it yet. And it's been quite a while since uh, we picked up that particular project. But I do look forward to continuing to build that costume design. I think it could be really exciting. On the other hand, with the Ghosts of Hell Creek main stage production, um, which maybe I should just for your listeners who haven't seen some of the documentation from it, it is a full-fledged theatrical show. You can think something along the scale of a Broadway show with Mm -hmm. the big set installation and complex lighting design and choreographies for the stage. And we have been working aesthetically with this idea of clay. Uh, Of course, uh, the fossils are dug out of claystone for the most part in the Hell Creek area. And I was very inspired by these layers and colors of clay that are found in Hell Creek specifically. And so our our costume design is on a semi-nude body. So basically we're not seeing a costume of the animal. We're seeing the human covered in these layers of pigmented clays. So it's this rock-like experience of the body. And by using this sort of semi-nude form, it's a, a blank canvas on which the movement and the atmosphere of the show and of course the soundtrack all work to bring the audience's imagination into these prehistoric ecosystems into this evolutionary story in a way that's really engaging of the imagination and as the actor we're imagining that we are this animal so that say for our acheroraptor our our dromaeosaurid dinosaur character we have to constantly imagine that we have this counterbalancing tail and that the motions are taking into account this imaginary tail. We're responding as if we have it. Mm. But this especially came after a couple of the initial iterations of the live performance and, and asking this question about the more evolved costume with the tail and more costume pieces And we got some feedback, including from Greg, actually, the paleontologist, who felt that maybe your imagination will stop at that tail if you have that tail literally represented as a costume piece. Hmm. And so it actually creates a bit of a boundary for the audience's imagination to see through the character into the world itself. So as an artistic decision... For Ghosts of Hell Creek specifically, I'm going to continue to work with quite minimal costuming. We have wings for the raptor mm-hmm. uh, dinosaur. So we definitely use those wings extensively in our choreography. But beyond that, we're going to keep it um, quite minimal. But who knows for future installations, especially more site-specific street pieces, pieces that can be brought um, into non-theatrical spaces. I think it'd be really fun to have this more fleshed out hybrid human raptor performance experience. Definitely. Yeah. Well, so speaking of site specific, your next step, it sounds like, is to take this on tour. Indeed. Yeah. We are um, planning on building this international touring production of Ghosts of Hell Creek, setting up the team, the ensemble, and the physical production to be invited to perform at theaters all over the world. We're based out of Bali. My, my dancers are primarily Indonesian. Mm-hmm. 
And we're in the process of building our headquarters and rehearsal base camp uh, in Bali. And then that will be our launching pad to travel anywhere we are invited. So yeah, that piece will be, the main stage piece will be for theaters. We may do some slightly more stripped down versions of it to make it a little more flexible for dance festivals and other kinds of venues. But my concentration is still really on this big theatrical experience, just because that's where you get to really appreciate the whole aesthetic, immersive experience of the piece. Definitely. I, I know you mentioned Akira Raptor. Are there any other dinosaurs that you feature in the performance? So dinosaurs specifically, no. Sorry, I know dino. We just have one. <laughs> uh, we just have Akira Raptor. The last known uh, Dromaeosaurid dinosaur from the Hell Creek Formation that, as far as we know, was there when this asteroid hit Chicxulub, or what is now Chicxulub. And so the main character of Ghost of Hell Creek is a Curaptor. Uh, the piece is sort of celebrating the life of a Curaptor and going through the asteroid impact and also the Deacon Traps eruptions. Mm-hmm. So balancing those two potential causes of the KPG mass extinction. Yeah, what it's like for this gorgeous animal to go through this kind of catastrophic events and uh, the process of its death and fossilization. And Akiraptor was named by another one of my project mentors, Dr. Dave Evans from Royal Ontario Museum after the Acheron, which... um, is uh, one of the mythical rivers from yeah, Greek mythology at the mouth of Hades, where upon crossing, all memory is lost. Mm. And so there's this kind of mythic voyage to the underworld scene, the crossing of the Acheron, <laughs> kind of parallel to the process of fossilization and becoming buried in the earth and being lost to memory from the earth and the earth's ecosystems for the next 66 million years ago until we found them. That is epic. <laughs> I did. And so that's got to be quite a challenge to tell all of that in this experience. Yeah, I, as an artist, look for the most iconic ways to represent these moments in, in a way that the, it emblazes in the mind of the viewers. So if you have no experience with paleontology, with prehistory, you'll have these strong images. Uh, and then we also work with, of course, the emotional quality of the piece and everything from the lighting and the acting and the soundscaping is all working to yeah, give, give this strong aesthetic feeling to each part of that story, that process. Cool. Are there any other big changes you've made since the last time we talked, other than just growing like crazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, so the last time we talked, we I was actually just working with a raptor dinosaur character, but Ghost of Hell Creek is in four acts, and those four acts each star a specific prehistoric species, hmm. and in the context of its ecosystem, one of them, I said, is is the raptor dinosaur, but Act 1 stars Hycoictes from the Cambrian Explosion. So this is uh, one of the earliest known chordates, uh, hmm. ancestral vertebrates um, from the fossil record. Hmm. So we're starting the piece going back 525 million years, long before the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. uh, really starting at the beginning of the vertebrate evolutionary story and connecting with how our relationship with this animal 
connects us also with every other backbone sporting animal that's ever lived on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so from that first scene, we go into act two, which stars protoclepsidrops, hapless specifically, from the late Carboniferous. Uh, Its fossils are from Nova Scotia, from the Joggins Cliffs Formation. And uh, Protoclepsidrops is one of the animals that's as close as we found to the last common ancestor of synapsids and sauropsids. So there, when we're talking about our relationship with a bird or we're talking about our relationship with a Caraptor, that story gets traced back to that meeting point really directly in an animal very much like Protoclepsidrops. Is that like a small lizard sort of thing? Basically looks like a lizard. Yep. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how big it was? Uh, it has a lot of size range from what I've learned about the animal. So uh, it seems like it's anywhere from one to two feet. Okay. But uh, I'll probably have to check to <laughs> double check that. Pretty small, but the thing has been pretty fragmentary also, the bones. So, but it's, yeah, definitely quite lizard-like. And so we have this you know, low, sprawling gates and the <laughs> flick of the wrist and working with uh, yeah, what it's like to be in this vast carboniferous swamp. <laughs> we continue then to Hell Creek. So the rest of the piece takes place around Hell Creek and a Caraptor, the star of Act 3, and these flood jungles uh, on the banks of the uh, Western Interior Seaway, this waterway that used to cut through the middle of North America. And it's kind of a flood forest ecosystem and it shares a world with t-rex and with triceratops Mm -hmm. kind of the much lesser known animal and with the akiraptor we really know only uh jaws and partial cranial oh wow pieces and then a lot of teeth so that must be hard to reconstruct then and figure out the kind of movement it seems it's placed really close to velociraptor in the dromaeosaurid phylogeny so Mm -hmm. Basically, we have to base what we're doing on a Velociraptor. Gotcha. So, yeah, as far as we know, it has pretty similar proportions, uh, pretty similar size. Nice. In a paper that you wrote about this, you're saying that there's an iconic scene, this elaborate courtship dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, of course, we have this question about how did the dromaeosaurs use their feathers? use their wings, use these fans of feathers that um, seem to be on most of the tails that we found because I can't fly. Of course, you know, the first thing that we go to is uh, courtship and sexual selection. And so they get, you know, really uh, interesting to think about, well, what would the courtship dances of this, you know, incredible looking animal be? Mm-hmm. And so I you know, was looking at a lot of videos of Birds of Paradise and also the great Argus pheasant. Mm. Uh, have you ever heard of a great Argus? I don't think so. No. You should look it up. It's not <laughs> such a well-known animal, but it's absolutely beautiful. It looks a bit like a bluish gray peacock, huh. but the fan of feathers that go in a peacock, a male peacock, that would be from the tail. This is actually its wings. Oh, it wow. makes this this giant halo of feathers with its wings that it flicks up and it has this amazing kind of undulating hops that it does. Hmm. And it's actually known from Indonesia. It's uh, in, in Sumatra and Borneo. Cool. cool. So that's also nice. I saw Birds of Paradise are also in Papua, which, uh, yeah, it's uh, in the Indonesian archipelago as well. 
So we based a lot of the movements on looking at some of these animals. And then there's a lot of Indonesian dance courtship dances that are between a male and female dancer that take a lot of inspiration from bird courtships. So we've also you know, been playing with various kinds of inspirations, not getting into borrowing anything too explicitly from Indonesian culture, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to stay away from, you know, something that could be seen as cultural appropriation, but just as starting places, you know, where especially working with Indonesian dancers. And then, yeah, so we, we have a, a musical scene there. There's some of the more elaborate music in the piece and uh, very percussive. And uh, there's the scene is set up like a lecking, the way that uh, male birds will compete over a female within the lecking kind of courtship arena within mm-hmm. that stage. Is lecking, that's the one where they're scraping the ground? Is that what lecking is? So the lecking definitely, yeah, involves the scraping. And then lecking is also more the situation where you have multiple males competing through courtship displays over a single female. Oh, I see. So as a viewer of this, of these different stages, do you get some sort of like crash course before it happens so that you know what's going to happen throughout the performance? Or how do you kind of know that you're watching a dinosaur versus watching a you know lizard thing or is, mm-hmm. it, is it just based on the movement alone and then later on you can find out more if you want to yeah great question so uh in the performances so far we have a program a performance program that has a little seal on the inner part so of course we just have our credits and then there's a seal which you are asked whether you're interested in knowing the science before you watch or after you watch. Oh. So if you want to know before, you can break that seal before the piece begins. If you want to wait until afterwards, you can break that seal after nice. you see it. For people who don't want spoilers. For people who don't want spoilers, because <laughs> there there's uh, different opinions about what people want to be exposed to before they see a performance. Mm-hmm. And um, so that gives an option there. That's really clever. Sabrina would definitely be the breaking of the seal in the beginning <laughs> part. Oh, yeah. And I would be the <laughs> waiting till the end. Because we'll go to plays nice. and Sabrina will be at the intermission, like Googling what happened, if it's a nonfiction <laughs> or historical fiction. You'd be like, oh, I just learned something. And it's like one of the main characters died or something. Yeah. I'll be like, don't tell me. Why so- Why at the intermission are you looking up <laughs> what happens at the end of the play we're watching? I just have to know. <laughs> and then I try my best not to share it with you, but it's hard sometimes. Yeah. You just look at me and you go like, mm. <laughs> stuff happens. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so that's good. It's good that there's a seal there so we can yeah. we have the choice. <laughs> we have choice, yes. Uh, choice is important. <laughs> so then the last act you mentioned a little bit earlier, Purgatorius. Purgatorius, yeah. So, of course, um, we're here. So our ancestors survived the KPG mass extinction, survived the asteroid impact. And in Hell Creek, in some of the strata just following that actual KPG boundary line, we have Purgatorius Unio, also found in the Hell Creek area. And so Purgatorius looks a bit more like a squirrel than it does a monkey. Hmm. And there's, you know, there's still um, you know, conversation about exactly how it fits into the primate lineage, but we can safely say that at least it can represent, from our knowledge at this point, our direct ancestor who survived the asteroid impact. So the final act of the piece is a kind of celebration of our survival story. 
and how Purgatorius thrived as the world was reborn from the ashes of the asteroid impact. And Purgatorius is one of the first fruit-eating animals, fructivorous animals. And also we have, at least in North America, the first evidence of uh, fleshy fruit just directly after the KPG mass extinction. Nice. Um, in this new radiation of angiosperms. So not to create too direct of a connection with the Eden story, but there's a kind of inescapable and intriguing image about this uh, ancestor dining on these first fruits using mm-hmm. its opposable thumbs to get out to the ends of these spindly branches and get to the fruit that other animals can't get to. I won't say exactly how the piece ends, but uh, that's our final act. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. So they had opposable thumbs way back then too. Yeah, I mean, they're not as fully opposable as later primates, but um, definitely was beginning to gain that opposable capacity in its thumb. That's fascinating. A big advantage. Yeah, it's good for holding fruit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's We think that the opposable thumbs and that fruit may have co-evolved. <laughs> that's so great. I think one really compelling thing about, as someone who hasn't seen the show, is you've got these really beautiful photographs and uh also you have a video because you've launched an indiegogo campaign Mm -hmm. for the next stages of everything i guess you want to tell us a little bit about yeah the indiegogo campaign i'd love to talk about the indiegogo yeah so i just this week launched a prehistoric body launch pad which is a indiegogo campaign to raise the funds to finish building the international touring production of ghosts of hell creek Uh, We've been building this in iterations, both in the U.S. and also in Indonesia. But now is time to really uh, hone the final production to prepare for touring and uh, to work intensively with the ensemble to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and build the piece uh, into a world-class production that can be shown on large international stages. And uh, so in order to fund all of that and also the necessary administrative and management uh, services and costs that come along with all that, yeah, fundraising through this Indiegogo. And backers of the Indiegogo can enjoy some uh, fun perks. I'm calling them treasures. (laughs) And uh, these treasure troves include being able to get exclusive looks at the uh, Ghost of Hell Creek film that we shot in Indonesia and soundtrack downloads, which I've never released before. But specifically for Indiegogo backers, you can get access to the soundtrack and um, dance tutorials, uh, original paintings, and all kinds of other fun perks are in there. So uh, it's not just a donation, but you get something really fun in return. Very cool. Yeah. I like the idea of the dance tutorials. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We have uh, one treasure trove for each of the prehistoric periods that are featured in the piece. So there's a Cambrian treasure trove, there's a Carboniferous treasure trove, there's a Cretaceous treasure trove, and a Paleogene treasure trove. <laughs> so each of these comes along with the dance tutorial relating to the animal featured in that act. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. We'll have a link in our show notes for anybody who wants to check it out and get one of their own treasures. <laughs> <laughs> But also for our listeners, if they wanted to learn more about prehistoric body theater, where is the best place to learn more about you and your work? 
Yeah, our website is www.prehistoricbody.org. Nice. Great. Yeah, or just Google Prehistoric Body Theater and we come right up. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and explain all these amazing developments. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having me on again. I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks again, Ari, for chatting with us and giving us the latest news on Prehistoric Body Theater. The company has come a long way since we first interviewed Ari, and it's really great to see all the cool things that are coming out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Huayangasaurus, which was a request from Marcos and Dinosaur4602. So thanks. Huayangasaurus was a stegosaur that lived in the Middle Jurassic in what is now China. It was about 14.7 feet or 4.5 meters long, and it's one of the smallest known stegosaurs. It was quadrupedal and herbivorous, and it had a double row of plates on its neck, back, and tail, which were more spike-like than its close relative stegosaurus. Huayangasaurus also had a lot of osteoderms, including shoulder spines, and it had two large spikes above its hips, which may have helped deter predators from attacking it. Huayangasaurus plates were also smaller than Stegosaurus, and it had these vein-like cavities in the plates on its back, which may have helped regulate body temperature or to change the color of the plates to either scare off predators or attract potential mates. It had two pairs of long spikes near the end of its tail, that's its thagomizer, and Huayangasaurus had a small skull. This skull was broader than later Stegosaurus, and it had premaxillary teeth in the front of its mouth. Later Stegosaurus didn't have this. It also had a short snout, at least compared to Stegosaurus, and long forelimbs. The type species is Huayangasaurus taibai. It was described in 1982 by Dong Juming, Tang Zilu, and Zhou Shiwu. About 12 individuals were found in the Da Shampu Quarry in Sichuan in 1979 and 1980, and the genus name comes from Huayang, which is an alternate name for Sichuan, the province in China where it was found. The name means Huayang's lizard, and the genus name also alludes to the Huayang Guozhi from the Jin Dynasty. The species name is in honor of the Chinese poet Li Bai, whose courtesy name was Tai Bai. In 2006, Susanna Maidment reviewed the material and found some of the referred specimens should be a different taxon. Huayangasaurus lived around the same time and place as sauropods, such as Shunosaurus and Omeosaurus, the ornithopod Shiaosaurus, and the carnivore Gassosaurus. You can see a mounted skeleton of Huayangasaurus at the Zigong Dinosaur Museum in Zigong and the Municipal Museum of Chongqing in Sichuan Province, China. And you can also see Huayangasaurus in the game Jurassic World Evolution. 
And our fun fact of the day, back to the raptor theme, is that not all raptors are raptors. <laughs> and by that, I mean not all dinosaurs that end in raptor are dromaeosaurs. So the first animals named raptors were modern birds of prey, and that comes from the Latin rapio, which means lots of different things. It can be seize, snatch, take, or catch, I think are the most relevant ones. And that's because they have large talons that are useful for snatching stuff. In terms of non-avian dinosaurs, Dromaeosaurus was the first known quote-unquote raptor. And that's why the much less ambiguous name for raptors is Dromaeosaurus, because it's the scientific name for the group, which Dromaeosaurus was the first member of, so usually that's how we name the groups. Dromaeosaurus was found by Barnum Brown in the 19-teens and named in 1922. However, it wasn't called a raptor at the time. It was just called a Dromaeosaurus. Then two years later, in 1924, Osborne named Ovaraptor and Velociraptor in the same paper, <laughs> along with Sauroornithoides. And I want to read a quick excerpt from the first page of the paper, because I, I just think it's amazing that he named all three of these almost in the same paragraph. <laughs> Say, quote, The skulls are entirely dissimilar and extraordinarily interesting. The first of the typical megalosaurian type, because we used to call things megalosaurs all the time. In this case, he's talking about Velociraptor. Although of small size, seems to have been an alert, swift-moving, carnivorous dinosaur to which the generic name Velociraptor is applied. So it was just named that because it looked like it was fast and carnivorous, and I guess that made it similar to some of these raptor birds. Didn't really go into any more detail than that. The second, although megalosaurian, and provided with a row of teeth, was at first mistaken for the skull of a bird. Owing to its long, slender rostrum, it may prove to have avian relationships. Indeed it did. <laughs> Hence we name it Sauroornithoides, the bird-like theropod. <laughs> it's a pretty good name. The third is a short skull, entirely toothless, like Ornithomimidae, which was found lying directly over a nest of dinosaur eggs, separated only by four inches of friable sandstone, hence we name it Ovaraptor, the egg Caesar. That's where it all started. <laughs> yep. The forelimb found with the skull is clearly related to Ornithomimidae, end quote. So technically, Velociraptor was named before Ovaraptor. Barely. Yeah, by about five sentences. <laughs> And so because of that, I'm going to declare that that's the real raptor. Plus, it's how everybody uses it. Everybody, when they say raptors, isn't referring to over-raptors and over-raptor-type dinosaurs. They're really talking about dromaeosaurs. A quick bonus fun fact. The holotype velociraptor skull was found next to a protoceratops skull, just like the fighting dinosaurs were decades later. Common enemies. <laughs> yeah, or common prey. <laughs> yeah. So typically, raptor is used at the end of both dromaeosaurs and oviraptor-type dinosaurs, but occasionally others use it as well, just to confuse things even further, like Nototesserae raptor, the Triassic theropod, which was named this year. Although a lot of people don't like that, including me, because it's very confusing. Raptor just has a nice ring to it. It does sound really nice, but I think we should probably at least just stick to two completely different groups of dinosaurs <laughs> being over raptors and velociraptor type dinosaurs and on that note 
That wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Thank you for being our listeners for the past 250 or so episodes. And if you want to join our growing community and help us see all the dinosaurs in Australia and cover SVP, then check out our page, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.